This evening we're continuing our overview of the Old Testament book titled Job. Now with this as the focus, if you would, let's open our Bibles to Job chapter 15. And as you make your way to the 15th chapter of Job, I just want to take a moment to put our text back into its context. It'll first help us to remember that the bulk of this book is centered around a conversation that unfolded between a man named Job and his three friends, Eliphaz, Bildad, and Zophar. I'll remind you, it was back in the beginning of this book when we learned about that day when Eliphaz, Bildad, and Zophar, they learned about the trials and the tribulations and the pain and the suffering of their friend Job. And so after hearing about this, they left their homes and they went to comfort Job and encourage him with corrective counsel. And after arriving, they sat in silence for seven days as they mourned with their friend Job. And then after that period of mourning was over, each man then began to take their turn, encouraging Job to realize that the Lord was probably punishing him for living in unrepentant sin. Eliphaz spoke first, followed by Bildad, and finally Zophar gave his two cents, and each one presented their perspective regarding the reason for Job's suffering. And while they respectfully you know, gave Job the opportunity to respond to each of their unfounded accusations, well, they were quick to reject his defense. And the reason why? Well, it's because they truly believed that the pain and suffering of Job was a punishment from the Lord. Rather than believing the best about their friend, they assumed the worst. And as a result, they continued accusing him of living in sin and deserving the punishment that he had received. As a matter of fact, it's here in our text tonight where we find Eliphaz. He's now starting a second round of accusations. And as we continue to consider the false accusations that he was making against Job, well, it's my hope that we'll all realize that our perspective isn't automatically correct just because we think it's true. That's where Eliphaz was coming from. He thought that his perspective was correct because, well, that was his perspective. That was his opinion. That was his truth. And while it's not uncommon for people to insist that their opinion is correct because it's their truth, we must not fail to realize that an opinion can only be true if it actually corresponds to reality. That's just the fact of the matter. This is the correspondence theory of truth. Your opinion is only true if it corresponds to reality. And you can say it's your truth all day long, but if it fails to correspond with reality, it's not a true opinion. It's false. With all this being the case, we all do well here to make sure that our opinions uh, about everything and our opinions about others actually correspond with reality. And we should make sure that our opinions about others actually correspond to reality before we decide that it's time for us to launch into a series of accusations against others. One reason why is because it's a sin to bear false witness against, uh, against other people. It's a sin to bear false witness against other people. Therefore, before we rush to judgment about others, we might spend some time making sure that our point of view and our perspective is correct, that it actually corresponds to reality. And, and this would probably include listening to the perspective of the person that we're about to make accusations against. As we take the time to consider their point of view, we might 
avoid making the same mistake that you know, was being made by the friends of Job. Now, with all this in focus, let's pick up our overview here of Job as we turn our attention here to the 15th chapter. And I want to begin our study there at verse 1, because here we read, Then Eliphaz the Temanite answered and said, Should a wise man answer with empty knowledge and fill himself with the east wind? Should he reason with unprofitable talk or by speeches with which he can do no good? Now, here in the first three verses of this chapter, we find Eliphaz. He's now responding to Job with kind of a backhanded compliment here. And as we take a closer look at this carnal compliment, I should take a moment to remind you that it was actually back in chapter 12. That's where Job was responding to his friend Zophar by declaring, no doubt you are the people and wisdom will die with you, but I have understanding as well as you. I am not inferior to you. Indeed, who does not know such things as these? Now, when we studied those verses, we considered how Job was assuring his friends that he was just as wise as them, that he was operating with the same information that they had. And now here in our text tonight, we find Eliphaz, he's challenging Job's claim to be as wise as them. And, you know, he basically says, you know, should a wise man answer with empty knowledge? In other words, if you're really that wise, if you're really the wise man you claim to be, then why is it that we're just receiving this blustering wind from the east? I like the, <clears throat> the way that the scholars who created the New Living Translation rendered verses 2 and 3. They put it like this. A wise man wouldn't answer with such empty talk. You are nothing but a windbag. The wise don't engage in empty chatter. What good are such words? It's here in, in these verses where we find Eliphaz effectively you know, uh, complimenting Job you know, for his wisdom, and yet at the same time, Eliphaz has no problem challenging the so-called wisdom of Job. And the reason why is due to the fact that he was convinced that Job's perspective was incorrect. However, uh, nothing could be further from the truth. You see, Job truly was a wise man. And he was walking by faith with the Lord. And as we consider the incorrect perspective of Eliphaz, I can't help but to remember something that Paul wrote in Romans chapter 12. It's Romans 12 verse 16 where Paul declares this. He says, do not be wise in your own opinion. Do not be wise in your own opinion. Or in other words, don't be wise in your own estimation. And when it comes to debatable or doubtful things, when it comes to you know, a, different of pers- a difference of perspective, you know, it's, it's unwise for us to think that our opinion is automatically correct because it's the opinion that we've arrived at. It, it would be wrong for us to think that you know, we're just the wisest person in the world and so therefore all of our opinions are always right. Now, I realize that the reason why we have our opinions is because we think they're the right opinions. But that doesn't mean they're right. I like the way that King Solomon addresses this issue. It's in Proverbs 26, verse 12. There he asks, Do you see a man wise in his own eyes? There is more hope for a fool than for him. Ouch. Is this your opinion? Do you agree with King Solomon that the person who is wise in his own eyes has less hope than 
a foolish person? Listen, when it comes to debatable things, things that you know, we can't you know, gather all the information about, the, the person who ends up becoming wise in their own eyes is actually being foolish. And the reason why is because they're unwilling to consider the perspective of others and they're, they're un, unwilling to consider uh, all of the information that they don't have. You know, it's been said that the older you get, the more you realize how much you don't know. I mean, that's the way it's supposed to work, right? The more we learn, the more we realize that, man, that's something I didn't know yesterday. And so, so how much information is out there that, that we haven't even begun to even consider? There's things that we haven't even started questioning about the universe or God or, or the way he relates with mankind. And so be careful when you lock into your opinions and think that you've got it all figured out. There's more hope for a fool than that person. We have to take the time to consider the perspective of other people as we begin to you know, draw conclusions about the way things really are. And With this uh, you know, as our goal, it's important to understand that Eliphaz wasn't willing to do this. Eliphaz, you know, the, the problem that Eliphaz was having, and the same with you know, Bildad and Zophar, is that they weren't willing to consider Job's perspective. They weren't willing to hear what Job had to say and take it into consideration. They were blinded by their questionable perspective, and it's for this reason that they couldn't even begin to consider Job's point of view. Now, with all this in mind, I want to continue to consider the false accusations of Eliphaz. And so look with me here at Job chapter 15. We'll pick up our study beginning at verse 4, because here Eliphaz goes on to declare, Yes, you cast off fear and restrain prayer before God, for your iniquity teaches your mouth, and you choose the tongue of the crafty. Your own mouth condemns you, and not I. Yes, your own lips testify against you. Now, here in these verses, we find Eliphaz. He's accusing Job of being a man of iniquity who has no fear of the Lord. And not only that, but he also described Job as a crafty man who was unwilling to pray. And the reason why is because he was too busy making up lies. And, and, and the chances are that Eliphaz here is responding to a statement that Job made back in chapter 13. There he declares, I would speak to the Almighty, and I desire to reason with God, but you forgers of lies... You are all worthless physicians. Oh, that you would be silent, and it would be your wisdom. Man, that's, that's, a, that's a nice diss. But so anyway, Job here is informing his friends that he would rather spend time praying to God than to sit around and listen to their false accusations made by his so-called friends here. And in response, Eliphaz now, uh, in our text tonight, is insisting that Job was the one who was hindering his own devotional life. Job was saying, you guys are hindering me from talking to God. And Eliphaz is saying, no, no, you're hindering yourself. Eliphaz was insisting here that Job was hindering his own devotional life. And the reason why? Well, it's because he was too busy defending himself with all of his clever deceptions, as Eliphaz put it. Now, as we consider this argument against Job, I want to take a moment to, to remind you that Job was actually a man of incredible devotion. We saw this back in the beginning of the book. Job was a man of incredible devotion, and therefore when Job defended his devotional life with the Lord, he was humbly presenting his friends with the facts, with the way things really were. 
But rather than believing the best about Job, you know, Eliphaz, he continues stirring up strife in this conversation by falsely accusing Job of practicing deception rather than devotion. In this way, Eliphaz was not only stirring up strife, but he was actually the one engaging in deception. Now, Eliphaz was the one who was engaging in deception by falsely accusing Job. Now, with all this in mind, I can't help but to remember the words of King Solomon. They're found in Proverbs chapter 29, verses 22 and 23, where King Solomon declares, An angry man stirs up strife, and a furious man abounds in transgression. A man's pride will bring him low, but the humble in spirit will retain honor. Christian, listen, before we allow a simple disagreement to become a divisive discord, we should take a moment to remember that it's the contentious person who loves to stir up strife. It's the contentious person who loves to stir up strife, and at the same time, it's the humble person who attempts to live peaceably with all people. We would all do well to take some time to just examine our own lives and and ask ourselves, am I the contentious person? who's constantly stirring up strife? Do I need drama in my life? Am I constantly starting arguments over nothing? Or are we trying to live peaceably with the people that are around us? Well, we know what was true of Eliphaz. He he was a contentious person who was stirring up strife. And to further uh, make my case here, I want to continue to consider the way that Eliphaz was stirring up strife with Job here Uh, In the next couple of verses here, if you would look with me at Job chapter 15, we'll begin reading at verse 7. Here Eliphaz asks, Are you the first man who was born, or were you made before the hills? Have you heard the counsel of God? Do you limit wisdom to yourself? What do you know that we do not know? What do you understand that is not in us? Both the gray-haired and the aged are among us, much older than your father." Well, rather than appealing to the evidence, which would prove that Job was guilty of living in some sort of secret sin, Eliphaz didn't present the evidence. No, instead he simply engages in a fallacious argument better known as an appeal to age. He makes an appeal to age, and this is actually a subset of the genetic fallacy, which seeks to discredit the argument of the, the opposition because of the source rather than the merits of the argument. You know, He's basically saying that, you know, hey, you're wrong. Why? Well, because you're, you're younger than me. I'm older than you, so I'm right. You're younger than me, so you're wrong. Eliphaz was essentially disregarding the perspective of Job because of his age. And in other words, he seemed to be suggesting here that Job wasn't the oldest guy in the group, therefore he should respectfully agree with those who had more gray hair. Now, as we consider this argument, it's important for us to understand that a a person's perspective isn't automatically correct just because of their old age. And so it's okay. Use the Grecian formula, guys. You're not going to be more right because of your gray hair. Wisdom is something that certainly comes with life experience. And so... You know, we, we are encouraged to look to the elders of the church. We are encouraged to consider the perspective of those who have lived longer because with life experience comes more wisdom. That's the way it's supposed to work. And, and, and then you see Biden presenting a speech. And you go, maybe not. It should work that way. 
But a lot of times it doesn't. You know, I'm sure we've all known, you know, older guys that just kind of ramble on and not make not not, not making much sense, like, like kind of what I like like what I'm doing right now. It's my gray beard. Life experience should come with wisdom, but it's not always true. An elderly person can still have the wrong perspective regarding debatable things. And at the same time, a younger person isn't automatically wrong just because they're younger. And it's for this reason that we would all do well to consider the merits of another person's opinion rather than agreeing or disagreeing with their position simply because of their age. This reminds me of Timothy, who was sent to pastor the church in Ephesus when he was in his mid-30s. And after learning about the struggles that he was experiencing, because you know a man in his 30s in that day and age you know, wasn't going to be well-respected in that sort of pastoral position. So Timothy was struggling with the older guys in his church who weren't really listening to to him. And and so Paul encouraged his young protege to quit worrying so much about his age and to simply lead by example. It's actually in 1 Timothy chapter 4. It's verse 12 where he declared, Let no one despise your youth, but be an example to the believers in word, in conduct, in love, in spirit, in faith, and in purity. In other words, Paul's saying, Hey, if you just lead by example in all of these areas then those, those older guys will start respecting you as they see you leading by example. But quit worrying about their issue with your age, basically. Christian, listen, we don't determine the truthfulness of a person's perspective based on their age. Therefore, those who dismiss another because they're younger, well, they're only helping us to see that they don't have a real good reason for rejecting the opinion of the younger person. If you're rejecting the opinion of a younger person, because they're younger, well, then you really don't have an argument now, do you? It's just an appeal to age. And if you think someone's right just because they're older, well, again, you don't have a good reason. You're appealing to age. It's a fallacious argument, and it doesn't prove anything. Listen, if we don't have a rational reason to reject the opinion of another person, then why would we spend so much time and energy arguing with them? Like, if we really don't have an argument against it, then why argue? I like the way that Paul puts this in 2 Timothy chapter 2. It's there where he declares, Avoid foolish and ignorant disputes, knowing that they generate strife. And a servant of the Lord must not quarrel, but be gentle to all, able to teach, patient, in humility, correcting those who are in opposition, if God perhaps will grant them repentance so that they may know the truth, and that they may come to their senses and escape the snares of the devil, having been taken captive by him to do his will. Now here in these verses, we kind of see the two sides of the same coin here when it comes to quarreling versus correcting. Paul's encouraging Pastor Timothy here, hey, hey, avoid just senseless arguments. Avoid those sorts of arguments that could be considered foolish and ignorant and, you know, unnecessary. You know, there's so many people that spend so much time online just engaging in foolish and ignorant arguments that um, at the end of it, what do you, if you win, what, what do you win? What do you win? What's the prize? 
We shouldn't be quarreling with people over foolish and ignorant and debatable sorts of things. And yet at the same time, Paul also instructs them to correct those who are in opposition. Opposition to what? Our opinion? No. He says, in humility, correct those who are in opposition if God perhaps will grant them repentance so that they may, may know the truth. This is, a, this is dealing with the gospel message. Those who are in opposition to the gospel message should be corrected. And so don't argue about foolish things, but instead make sure that you're correcting those who are rejecting Jesus Christ. Simply put, we should always be ready to present a reasonable argument for our faith in Jesus Christ. And at the same time, we ought to also avoid the foolish and ignorant disputes, which will only generate strife about debatable things. And in this way, we'll avoid causing divisions with others over disputable opinions. With this as the goal, let's continue to consider the argument of Eliphaz found here in Job chapter 15. If you would look with me there beginning at verse 11. Here Eliphaz goes on to ask this. He says, are the consolations of God too small for you? And the word spoken gently with you? Why does your heart carry you away? And what do your eyes wink at? That you turn your spirit against God and let such words go out of your mouth. Now, here in these verses we find Eliphaz, he's dismissing Job's defense as nothing more than an emotional response to the rebuke that he had received. For example, it's there in verse 11 where Eliphaz suggests that Job was being way too sensitive because, you know, the initial challenge that, that he had received, um, you know, according to Eliphaz, was gently spoken and yet still too much. Still too much for, for Job. And, and that's oftentimes, you know, that's oftentimes the case. It, it's hard to receive a rebuke. It's hard to be corrected and, and challenged about things that we don't really want to be challenged about, right? And as Eliphaz considers Job's response, you know, he's saying, hey, I, I get it, you know. I mean, we tried to be as gentle as possible. You didn't like what you heard, and you got upset. In verse 12, he goes on to present Job as a man who was being unreasonable, and the reason why is because his feelings had been hurt, and that's not uncommon. It's not uncommon for people to become unreasonable because their feelings got hurt and all of a sudden it's no longer about what was said but how it was said. And you know, if you would have just said the same things but more gentle and then I could have... No, you wouldn't have. Stop it. It's what was said. And maybe also how it was said. But the fact is, I mean, most people don't like being corrected. And if, and if you think I'm wrong, you're wrong. So there. In verse 13, Eliphaz goes on to accuse Job of allowing his unchecked emotions to lead him further and further away from the Lord. And he's basically saying, look, you got rebuked, we tried to be gentle, you didn't like what you heard, and now you're just arguing for argument's sake. And while it's not uncommon for people to react in this sort of way after they've been rebuked, it's, it's also true that those who are falsely accused of doing something might also respond with the same sort of emotional defensiveness. And, and so, you know, Eliphaz is basically saying, hey, based on your response here, based on how unreasonable you're being, based on how emotional you're being, I know that I'm right. Because, you know, if you were innocent, you wouldn't be, you know, reacting in this sort of way. When in reality, 
a lot of people respond with emotional defensiveness when they're accused of something falsely. Sometimes people have an even stronger reaction to you know, when they've been accused of something falsely. And what this means then is that the emotional response that occurs after a rebuke doesn't prove guilt or innocence. If you think that someone's guilty because of their emotional response, that's not necessarily the case. We know that Job wasn't guilty. And yet he does seem to have had some sort of emotional response. All this proves is that the person's feelings were hurt. And whose, whose feelings aren't hurt by a false accusation? Knowing that false accusations hurt the feelings of the accused, I encourage you to remember that we've been called to love one another with the love of the Lord. And, and I can assure you that the Lord Jesus would never make false accusations against us. Who, who is the, the accuser of the brethren? Satan. Satan is the false accuser of the brethren, and when we make false accusations against others, guess who we're serving? It's certainly not Jesus, because Jesus would never falsely accuse us. And so if we're going to love one another with the love of the Lord, then we must make sure that before we make an accusation, we better check it out and make sure it's true. Otherwise, it's nothing more than a false accusation, which is extremely unloving. At the same time, it's also important for us to remember that those who are quick to accuse others are, are oftentimes guilty of iniquity. And with this in mind, let's con- uh, continue to consider the, uh, the argument of Eliphaz here found in Job chapter 15. If you would look with me there beginning at verse 14. Here he asks, what is man that he could be pure? And he who is born of a woman that he could be righteous. If God puts no trust in his saints... And the heavens are not pure in his sight. How much less man who is abominable and filthy, who drinks iniquity like water. Now, I don't know about you, but I think we should all get this cross stitched on a nice pillow for the living room couch. And man, this is this is tough reading, isn't it? You know, like here's Eliphaz just saying, hey, we're we're abominable and filthy creatures. We drink iniquity like water. And Eliphaz here is reminding Job about the curse that has affected the entirety of creation. As we consider everything that the Bible says about the curse of original sin, which happened there in the garden, there should be no doubt in our minds that we've all been conceived with the stain of Adam's sin. This is the imputation of Adam's sin to all of his progeny. And if you think that's unfair, then it's important to understand that in the economy of God, This was his plan so that he could turn around and send Jesus to die on the cross in our place and then impute his righteousness to everyone who would trust in him. If God allowed every person to represent themselves, like every person is born pure as the driven snow, and and then they choose to sin along the way, well then the Father would have to send one Savior per person in, in, in order to solve the problem of sin. But the Father allowed Adam to represent all of us in his sinful decision there in the garden so that he could turn around and send the second Adam to represent all of us there on the cross. Seems like a perfect solution to me. 
But listen, that, what that also means is that we're all born with the stain of sin. Paul says there's none righteous, no, not one. And while it's true that this was the argument that Eliphaz was using against Job, that you know, he's a fallen creature, that he's an abomination, that he's filthy, and that he's drinking iniquity and these sorts of things, Eliphaz was simultaneously failing to realize that you know, when you point a finger at, at another person, you've got the three pointing back at you, right? The same argument that Eliphaz was using against Job was also falling back on him as well. You see, Eliphaz, just like Job, and just like all of us, was affected by the fall. Therefore, his personal opinions were also suspect, and for the same exact reason. But rather than applying this issue of the fall to both people and both opinions, Eliphaz was cherry-picking and choosing to point this finger at Job without considering how it also affected him as well. And instead, he decides to engage in yet another genetic fallacy. In other words, Eliphaz insisted that because Job was impure and unrighteous, uh, then his defense must be all wrong. And yet Eliphaz was also a man who was affected by the same curse. However, he wasn't holding his own perspective to the same standard that he was holding Job's to. And in this way, he was effectively stirring up strife by placing a greater value on his own imperfect point of view. At the same time, he also engaged in another fallacious argument as he appealed to the authority of others. And with this in mind, let's pick up our study of Job chapter 15. It's there at verse 17 where Eliphaz goes on to declare, I will tell you, hear me what I have seen. I will declare what wise men have told, not hiding anything received from their fathers, to whom alone the land was given and no alien passed among them. The wicked man writhes with pain all his days. And the number of years is hidden from the oppressor. Dreadful sounds are in his ears. In prosperity, the destroyer comes upon him. He does not believe that he will return from darkness, for a sword is waiting for him. He wanders about for bread, saying, where is it? He knows that a day of darkness is ready at his hand. Trouble and anguish make him afraid. They overpower him like a king ready for battle. He stretches out his hand against God and acts defiantly against the Almighty, running stubbornly against him with his strong embossed shield. Here in these verses we find Eliphaz, he's saying, I'm not saying it's aliens, but it's aliens. No, seriously, you know, he's engaging in a logical fallacy, which is better known as an appeal to authority. And just to be clear, an appeal to authority occurs when a person tries to prove their point by appealing to an authority figure who seems to support their, their perspective. And, and with this in mind, I want to back up and show you where this takes place. It's uh, there beginning at verse 17 again. Eliphaz, he engages in this fallacy by declaring this. He says, I will tell you, hear me, what I've seen, I will declare what wise men have told, not hiding anything received from their fathers. Now, it's kind of clunky here in the New King James Version, which is why I want to appeal to the New Living Translation. Uh, the same verses read in this way, If you will listen, I will show you, I will answer you from my own experience, and it is confirmed by the reports of wise men who have heard the same thing from their fathers. 
In other words, Eliphaz was appealing to the authority of the wise men who had come before them. And listen, even if the information that he received from these wise men was entirely true, well, this still wouldn't be proof that Eliphaz was correct concerning the suffering of Job. Remember, Job wasn't suffering because he was a wicked man. He wasn't a wicked man who had defiantly stretched out his hand against the Almighty. No, instead, he was suffering for the sake of righteousness because, remember, the fallen angel Satan wanted to put his faith to the test. His suffering was caused by Satan, not by God. And with that being the case, Eliphaz was incorrect when he appealed to the authority of elders as some sort of evidence that his perspective of Job was correct. His perspective of Job was incorrect, though the wisdom of the elders seems to be spot on. The wisdom that he acquired from the elders, that, that there's a lot of good information in there. Just didn't apply to Job, not at this point. In order to further explain my point, let's consider the way that he continues to make his case against Job. And so let's pick up at Job chapter 15, beginning at verse 27. There Eliphaz declares, Though he has covered his face with his fatness and made his waist heavy with fat, he dwells in desolate cities, in houses which no one inhabits, which are destined to become ruins. He will not be rich, nor will his wealth continue, nor will his possessions overspread the earth. He will not depart from darkness. The flame will dry out his branches, and by the breath of his mouth he will go away. Now, here in these verses we find Eliphaz. He's trying to fat shame overweight unbelievers, and I just I think he's wrong for it. But seriously, you know, the, you know, back in this period of time, being fat was a sign of prosperity. They would have seen me and thought, that, that guy's a millionaire probably. But, uh, but <laughs> you know, that's the way they saw it back then. But Eliphaz here is, a, is essentially saying, look, listen, wicked people might appear to be prospering and they might even appear to be enjoying the finer things in life as they store up wealth and yet everything they acquire is going to be lost in the fire. They might have a season of joy and yet it's all going to be lost in the judgment. Why? Well, because they wouldn't repent of their wickedness. Now, I'm sure we all realize Eliphaz was correct in his assessment of those who stubbornly reject the forgiveness of our Savior. And yet again, he was still failing to prove his point that Job was somehow walking in the way of wickedness. You know, and and he's, you know, Eliphaz is presenting good information here. It just doesn't apply to Job. Job wasn't walking in the way of wickedness. And while Eliphaz was convinced that his perspective was correct and he was certain that the pain and suffering of Job was evidence of Job's wickedness, his perspective was entirely incorrect and therefore his arguments were being misapplied. We find the same issue in the final section of this chapter where Eliphaz continues to warn his friend about the the road that Job wasn't traveling on. As a matter of fact, if you would look with me here at Job chapter 15, we'll pick up at verse 31. Here Eliphaz declares, Let him not trust in futile things, deceiving himself, 
For futility will be his reward. It will be accomplished before his time, and his branch will not be green. He will shake off his unripe grape like a vine and cast off his blossom like an olive tree. For the company of hypocrites will be barren, and fire will consume the tents of bribery. They conceive trouble and bring forth futility. Their womb prepares deceit. Now, here in the final verses of this chapter, we find Eliphaz. He's continuing to present Job with the wisdom of the elders. He's continuing to present them with you know, the wisdom that, that uh, their, their fathers and forefathers had passed down to them. And As we consider this word of warning, there should be no doubt in our minds that the path of wickedness will, in fact, result in a ruined life with no everlasting reward. And so this, you know, the, the wise sayings of these forefathers, it was correct. There's good information there. The way of wickedness will ruin a person's life, and if they don't repent in this world, it will ruin them in the afterlife as well. I like the way that King Solomon summed it up. He says, the way of the wicked is like darkness. They do not know what makes them stumble. Without debate, the path of wickedness is wrong, and those who travel it, you know, they might have fun at first, but it results in bondage. As we consider the way that Eliphaz described the wickedness of evil hypocrites, we must not fail to notice that he still failed to present a clear case for why this counsel applies to Job. He has yet to provide any evidence that Job is on the path of wickedness, apart from that he's really having you know, a bad time with all the pain and the suffering. His only real reason for believing that Job was on the path of wickedness was because this was the only explanation that he could imagine for all of Job's troubles and trials. And from this, we have to understand that Eliphaz was actually making a hasty generalization. This is another form of a fallacious argument. It's when you take a limited amount of information and you jump quickly to a conclusion. That's what he did. He engaged in a fallacious argument known as a hasty generalization, which led him to jump to the wrong conclusion about Job. And rather than listening to the perspective of his God-fearing friend, Eliphaz launched into a series of false accusations without seeking you know, the perspective of Job, let alone the wisdom of the Lord. As a result, well, the counsel of Eliphaz was less than wise. Eliphaz thought he was being you know, wise, but he was really just being a wise guy. With all this in mind, we do well to, to learn a lesson from the accusations of Eliphaz. And, and we can do this by realizing that those who want to counsel others, well, they should first take some time to listen to the perspective of the person that they're planning to challenge. If, if, you're, if you think that you're a wise counselor and yet you take no time to listen to the perspective of the person you're trying to counsel, that counsel might, might not be as wise as you think. We've got to take time to listen to the person that we're trying to counsel or, or challenge or rebuke. And as we listen to them, we'd also do well to prayerfully seek the wisdom which is provided, us, uh, provided to us, I should say, by, by the Holy Spirit of God. I like the way that James puts it in James chapter 3, beginning at verse 13 where James declares, Who is wise and understanding among you? Let him show by good conduct that his works are done in the meekness of wisdom. But if you have bitter envy and self-seeking in your hearts, do not boast and lie against the truth. This wisdom does not descend from above, but is earthly, sensual, demonic. 
For where envy and self-seeking exist, confusion and every evil thing are there. But the wisdom that is from above is first pure, then peaceable, gentle, willing to yield, full of mercy and good fruits, without partiality and without hypocrisy. Now the fruit of righteousness is sown in peace by those who make peace. Christian, listen, rather than leaning on our own understanding as we engage in arguments that we call wisdom, we ought to instead seek the wisdom that comes from our Creator. And according to James, this wisdom that comes from the Lord is not only pure, but it's also peaceable. Because remember, Jesus is the Prince of Peace. Jesus is the one who has come to bring us peace. And so as we walk in the wisdom of the Lord Jesus, well, he's going to lead us to become people of peace. And while it's true that the wisdom of the Lord is pure and peaceable, it's also true that here, according to James, that this wisdom is gentle and willing to yield because it's full of mercy and good fruits. Think about that for a moment. When, when you set out to engage in you know, counseling or correction, are you filled with the good fruits and the mercy that leads you to be willing to yield in the middle of the argument? In other words, are you ready, are you ready and willing in the middle of the argument to just stop and say, hey, this, this really isn't going anywhere. This, we're really just kind of tearing each other up here. So why, why continue? Let's just put it to rest and go pray. The wisdom that comes from our Creator is willing to yield. And this helps us to understand that there might be a time in the midst of, of a debatable disagreement you know, that we just realize that we're not in the Spirit, this is not from God, and there's no peace here, so why continue? Sometimes you just have to stop fighting because <laughs> it's not worth it. Sometimes we have to realize that the Lord isn't calling us to fight and die on every single little hill. And some of us live that way. Some of us actually live like, you know, well, every time anybody says something that I disagree with, I've got to jump into the fray and, and prove my point and argue until there's no end. Not that I know anything about that, but... Yeah, the wisdom of the Lord would lead us to yield when it's time to yield. The wisdom of the Lord would help us to understand when it's time to stop dividing over debatable things. And Christian, listen, there are many things that we just don't need to argue about at all. There are times when we ought to allow for the opinion of the other person when it comes to these sorts of debatable things. And listen, I'm not talking about essentials. You know that. I'll fight and die for the essentials of the Christian faith. I'm not going to budge one inch. But when it comes to all of the other debatable things, you know, isn't, isn't it just better to come to a place where we can be okay that someone we love has a different opinion? To sum it up simply, I encourage you to consider the famous adage that goes like this, in essentials, unity, in non-essentials, liberty, and in all things, charity. I like that. 
Rather than seeing every debatable issue as a reason to argue and rather than thinking that you know, the Lord needs us to go and, and you know, present every correction, we would do better to just learn how to live peaceably with all men as we continue walking in the love of the Lord. Let's pray. Lord, thank you so much.